going to do the most important thing we do here at Salt Revival, which is read the Bible. We're reading from Isaiah chapter 1 through to, or 1 through to 20, and then skipping to chapter 2. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, heathens, listen, earth. For the Lord has spoken, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten any more? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left some of us, left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our Lord, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me, new moons, sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am wary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Continuing from chapter 2. This is what Isaiah son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, 
nor will they train for war anymore. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Stirred by that, wouldn't you? Pretty stirring speech, indeed, one of the greatest of all time, delivered by Martin Luther King in 1963 in front of 200,000 people there at Washington, D.C., a stirring vision calling for the end of racial discrimination. It seems that everyone these days are getting in on the vision statement, and so, going from the sublime to the ridiculous, we have this. One day, every person in metropolitan city will live no further than a two-minute drive from McDonald's. There you have it. Hardly as inspiring as Martin Luther King, yet our vision statement nonetheless. Everyone's getting in on the vision statement these days. How about you? Do you have a vision statement? Should we have a vision statement for our lives? More importantly... Does God have a vision statement? Now, when we come to the book of Isaiah, we come to a very grand piece of work, an epic piece of work, the largest of the Old Testament prophecies, weighing in at 66 chapters, second only to the Psalms in the Old Testament, and in content, the most profound and most powerful words to be uttered by any prophet. Isaiah really is unequalled in the Old Testament, it's considered to be the pinnacle of Old Testament prophecy. Well, why? Why such high praise? It's for this reason. Isaiah, like no other book in the Old Testament, sums up God's vision for the universe. The book of Isaiah is indeed God's vision statement. So before we get into it, why don't we pray now that God would help us to not only understand his vision, but to be gripped by it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for your word. And Lord, as we come now to this grand piece of your word, we do pray you would help us to understand it, but not just to be hearers of your word, but to be gripped by it, that our hearts would beat like yours 
and want to see your kingdom come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we start with chapter 1, verse 1. I've got it here up on the screen for us. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, the thing you might notice when we start reading that is actually, well, God's vision, it starts out a little bit focused, don't you think? A little bit limited in its scope. Focused down to one particular nation, even one particular city, at a particular time. It's a vision that will be primarily shared to just one group of people, the people of Jerusalem, around 700 years before Christ came. So, well, what does that mean to us now? We are living an awful long way, an awful long time from ancient Israel. Here we are, 2021, Kiriwi, Australia. Who would have ever thought that existed in the time that Isaiah was speaking? But when we come to chapter 2, God's vision expands to the whole world. Have a look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 here on the screen. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Here we see God's vision reaching the last days of the universe, no longer limited to a time period. We'll see embracing all nations of the world, not just one little insignificant nation. God has a plan for history, that all nations, all peoples will hear his word and know that he alone is God. God has a vision for you, that you today will hear this word and acknowledge that he alone is your God. But that's not all. God has a plan not just for people, but the whole creation as well. Listen to this promise from the very end of Isaiah in chapter 65 here on screen. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be not heard in it anymore. That's a great vision, isn't it? When we look around us, what do we see? Decaying creation, decaying world. We see vast areas of our world destroyed by pollution. We're looking at each other tonight through masks because of a viral pandemic. There's always some place somewhere in this world that's suffering from famine and war. Every day we're reminded that we're living in a decaying world. I get reminded every time I look in the mirror. When under the oppression, and it is an oppression, friends, we live under the oppression of a fallen creation, this is the kind of vision that we yearn for. And it's so great. It's so great that God's vision will not remain limited, focused and particular. I'm so glad that you and I can be swept up in this vision, the vision of a new heaven, and a new earth, no longer under the curse 
of pain and evil. So, coming back to the beginning of Isaiah, why, why the very understated and focused beginning? Why not just cut straight to the chase? Well, because this little nation in the Middle East was going to play a key role in the purposes of God. At the centre of God's grand design for the world stands Judah and Jerusalem. But, and it's a big but, we have a problem. Look at these people in Jerusalem. They are a real sorry sight. And so reading from verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 here on the screen. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. Despite being raised by God, raised from being children, they have turned their backs on him. You know what the saddest irony is? They're still coming to the temple to worship God. But God declares their offerings as meaningless and worthless. Have a look at verse 12 with me here on screen. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbath, convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Not only has the religion become totally corrupted, the nation is also full of oppression and injustice. And so we read on in chapter 1, verse 21 here on the screen. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice worn is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Friends, there's no way a people like this can take part in fulfilling God's purposes. This was the nation, this was the nation that was through whom all nations would be blessed. But fundamentally, that needs to have start with them being in relationship with God. Instead, they turned away. They turned to the false religion of their pagan neighbours, and they had become proud, self-sufficient and arrogant. We see this picture this from chapter two, verses six and seven on the screen. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. 
There is no end to the chariots. Can you imagine the annual report from the Jewish business leaders of this day? It might have gone something like this. Well, we've had another bumper year. Business is going great. And our expansion into the international market, well, it's going very well and especially going well once we've embraced these different cultures. It's a wonderful example of multiculturalism. We go to their religious festivals and they can come to ours. And as the wealth flowed in, the pride grows and grows and everyday dependence turns inward to themselves rather than dependence on God. Isaiah calls it for what it is at the very end of chapter 2, verse 22. I'll put it here on the screen for you. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? Now we can shake our heads at this sorry picture. Um, But really it's a sobering warning for us as well. Because we too can be just like the people described in this passage. Idolatry and pride is as much a problem for us as it was for the Israelites. Because this is what really an, an idol is. It's not something that might just be a garish statue in the background. An idol is any person or anything that we devote ourselves to and become dependent on rather than God. So that again, what's an idol? An idol is any person or anything that we devote ourselves to and become dependent upon rather than God. Begs the question, what are the things that we instinctually depend on? Our smarts? Our intelligence? Perhaps if we haven't got so much of that, Maybe we depend on our health, our money, our expertise, our career. Maybe it's our reputation, our possessions, our investments. Here's a good test for us to ask ourselves. What is it that I would really fear losing? What really makes me jump up and get going if I have a fear of losing that? Friends, God stands above and beyond all these things. He's the creator and sustainer of all these things. We've got to rest in him and upon him and fully be fully dependent upon him. Otherwise, our trust is misplaced and we're in danger of judgment. And this is the warning of Isaiah in this passage here. The rejection of the true God will result in certain judgment. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 24 here on screen. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, mighty one of Israel, declares, "Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. God here is pictured as a, as a refiner. And so just as metal, if you know this, as metal passes through the furnace again 
and again and again, so Israel will be passed through an extreme judgment and punishment so they will be purged of their impurity. You know, what makes this prophecy all the more chilling is that in the very days that Isaiah was speaking here to Jerusalem, the people in Jerusalem would have been hearing about their cousins to the north, just next door. I've got a map on screen here for you to see at the time. Judah is the southern kingdom. That's who Isaiah is writing to, in particular to Jerusalem. But at this time, the kingdom to the north, Israel, was being judged by God. For they too were doing exactly the same things, turning away from God. And so now he had unleashed the empire of Assyria to invade that land and totally desolate them. So basically that two-thirds of, origin, of, of Israel is now gone. And the same fate now awaits Jerusalem. Um, at the height of the communist regime in Russia, um, that would have been between the periods of about late 1920s to about 1990, through that period there was actually times where it was totally illegal to meet as Christians. However, um, Christians still met in secret places and times. Now, one day at one of these meetings, uh, a number of communist soldiers burst in through the door with guns and gave an ultimatum. They commanded those who claimed to be Christians to stand up and move against the wall. But they said this, if you want, you can stand up and leave. If you're going to choose to let go of Christianity and live the communist way, you can leave this building, no questions asked, and you won't be harmed. Slowly, people began to leave the building. But some stood up, not the majority, just a few, stood up and went against the wall, declaring their allegiance to Christ, come what may. The soldiers closed the door behind the last to leave, then turned to the ones against the wall and said, well, now that we've got the true Christians here, can you explain to us what Christianity is all about? They put their guns down and then they started to listen to the gospel. Although I'm sure it was through quivering voices, what it was all about. It's a great story, isn't it? You know, I don't know if it's even true. But it's a great at illustrating that idea of purging out the pretenders from the ones that are honest and truly following God. The pretenders from the faithful. God purged Israel again and again until there was only a handful of faithful people left. You know, it's terrible that God had to give his people up to such a dark experience before a handful would repent. It's a sober warning to us. Because it's not unheard of that some people will go through terribly dark times before they turn back to God. Don't let God have to do that to you. God punishes his people because he loves them. He cannot stand that they stand far off and plummet further and further into the abyss of sin. Now he's driven by love to turn his people back to him. 
But how can God forgive these people? Especially when we see that at that time the sacrificial system had become totally useless, it had become corrupt. Well, without wanting to steal the thunder of a few weeks' time sermon, later in Isaiah, we we will read how God will provide a perfect sacrifice, the servant of God. And so we read in chapter 53, verse 5, here on screen. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was just a a shadow, a shadow of this sacrifice that's mentioned here. And it's in our Lord Jesus Christ that we see the fulfilment of this wonderful promise. The ultimate forgiveness of God's saints in the Old Testament is based upon the work of Jesus. It's light of Jesus' death on the cross that God could say to repentant Israel, I forgive you. It's in the light of Christ's death on the cross that he can say right now to us, I forgive you. And it's at this point in the vision of Isaiah that we see it focused on just one, one faithful Israelite, the servant of God. But his work actually bursts forth and blesses the whole earth. You see, the faithful servant is exalted and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. But this is actually done through God's newly forgiven people as they are drawn into the work of the servant to be witnesses to God's glory. And so by the close of Isaiah, the message becomes intensely evangelistic. The vision of God must be told to the ends of the earth. We are his witnesses and we can share of the great news of salvation and eternal life. It's a vast vision. And we see it complete in Isaiah. In the style of Martin Luther King, maybe you could put it like this. I have a dream that one day the scarlet sins of people will be washed clean by the blood of the Lamb and they'll be able to stand before God white as snow. I have a dream that there will be an end to the brokenness of this world and God's people will be able to shelter with him in a new heaven. I have a dream that one day all nations will stream to the mountain of the Lord and stand before God and praise him for the wondrous things he has done. I have a dream today. But we don't have to dream. We can say, I can see the work of the faithful Lord Jesus Christ who makes this dream become a reality. That is the vision that needs to grip us. The vision is nothing less than the gospel itself. The gospel is great news. It's something that is life-changing, setting the direction of all that we do. The things on God's heart need to be the things that are on our heart. The prophet Isaiah actually is a great example for us. For as he stood, he found himself standing in the court of heaven. And God asked, whom shall we send 
And Isaiah called out, Here I am. Send me. God's vision had become Isaiah's vision. And he devoted his life to proclaiming the word of the Lord. Do you know a great way to embrace God's vision would be for us to do? To become commitment helpers. Want to be a witness to God's glory at the Woolaware Gathering. As we relaunch that gathering, wouldn't it be great to have some people from here willing to be part of growing the kingdom in another part of the Shire in Cronulla? Well, over the next seven weeks, we're going to keep hearing from Isaiah. But I hope that we don't just come to understand the book of Isaiah just a little bit better. I hope that we grow to be filled with the vision of God. Having the gospel like a fire deep in our bones. So when we hear God ask, whom shall I send? We will stand up and say, here we are. Send us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we do thank and praise you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful vision that didn't stay limited and focused in one place and time, but expanded out to all time and to the whole of the universe. Lord, we thank you so much that you, in your great mercy, you've swept us up to be part of this great vision that we ourselves have heard the blessing of salvation and eternal life. And so, Lord, we do pray you would help us to fire ourselves up so that we too might be able to continue to pass on that great vision and that message to others as well so that they might be able to turn to you and live. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.